let's read this week's gospel text from the lectionary. Do we have that, Jocelyn? I want you, if you would, to read these eight verses with me. I'll turn and look at the same ones you're reading. Let's read them out loud together. Ready? And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world. And people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Frederick Beatner, uh, Steve just read from one of his books. I'm going to read from another. I have people all the time ask me where would they start with Beatner because I talk about him frequently as my favorite author. I think a great place to start with Frederick Beekner is in his memoirs. He has three small memoirs. The first is called Sacred Journey, kind of covers his childhood, his adolescence, teen, and maybe into his 20s. Uh, the second book, and all of them are little 100-page books, the second book is called Now and Then, and that covers his vocational life. And then there's the third memoir called Telling Secrets, and this one really covers his entire life. He just goes back and hits some things a, a little less historical and a little more poetic. Uh, some of the issues that he dealt with in the first two books, he deals with them deeper. This is my favorite, and these are a good place to start. In Telling Secrets, in this third memoir, he refers to his book, Brendan. Um, two fictional books that uh, Beekner wrote were Godric and Brendan. Godric was a medieval saint that truly lived 105 years in what was called Norfolk, then England now. Uh, and it's a tremendous book. It was nominated for a Pulitzer back in 81. Another book very similar to that about an Irish saint in the 6th century is called Brendan. And uh, this little excerpt is from Brendan. For the first time, we saw he wanted one leg. It was gone from the knee joint down. He was hopping sideways to reach for his stick in the corner when he lost his balance. He would have fallen in a heap if Brendan hadn't leapt forward and caught him. I'm as crippled as the dark world, Gildas said. Brendan. Brendan replied, if it comes to that, dear one, which one of us isn't? Gildan with but one leg. Brendan, sure, he had misspent his whole life entirely. Me that had left my wife to follow him and buried our only boy. The truth of what Brendan said stopped all of our mouths. If it comes to that, which of us isn't, my dear? We was cripples, all of us. For a moment or two, there was no sound but the bees. Finally, Brendan broke the silence and whispered, to lend each other a hand when we're falling? Perhaps that's the only work that matters in the end. 
the text that we read a moment ago begins in an awkward place for me, the lectionary text does. John 3 is one of my favorite chapters in John, and it begins by telling the story of a religious leader named Nicodemus. The Bible said in John 3 that there was a ruler of the Pharisees who, especially in the book of John, are cast as averse to Jesus and the enemies of Jesus. Not, not as much in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but uh, to a heightened degree in this late gospel of John. But anyway, John 3 says there was a, a ruler of the Pharisees, a ruler of the Jews, a Pharisee named, uh, named Nicodemus, and the same came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus is three times in the gospel of John called a disciple of the night. He was a man who had incredible loyalties to the synagogue and his loyalties and his membership in the synagogue, uh, John's gospel seems to intimate, would have been threatened by his relationship with Jesus. So three times he came to Jesus under the cover of night. This is the same Nicodemus who at the end of Jesus' life, along with Joseph of Arimathea, another Sanhedrin member, actually begged the body of Jesus and took Jesus out and buried him in the borrowed tomb of Joseph. But there was a ruler of the Jews named Nicodemus. The same came to Jesus by night, and he said unto him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher sent from God, for nobody can do the miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus, the Bible said, looked at him and said, Nicodemus, very truly I say to you, except a man be born, often in the old King James, or in the King James in some translations, the word there is again. It's actually a Hebrew word that could be translated from above or again. And I think the best scholarship these days is voting for from above. So Jesus said, except a man be born from above, except a man be born from heaven, he can't see the kingdom of God. He just can't see it. The Bible said Nicodemus, not understanding that little, uh, that twist on things, Nicodemus, I've often said, was like a punch drunk boxer and he fell back on the ring ropes and he covered up. And like a really good fundamentalist, he took Jesus' words with exactitude and repeated them back to him with, um, with a grave error. He looked at Jesus and he said, how can a man be born when he is old? This is what literalism and fundamentalism does to religion. You must be born again, Jesus said, to which Nicodemus replied, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? See what fundamentalism does to a text? What literalism does to a text? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus punched straight back and said, Nicodemus, except a man be born of the water and of the Spirit. Now, a lot of people have said that birth of water is water baptism, but it seems in the context that Jesus had just said a man has to be born from above. Nicodemus said, how can he be born again? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb? And Jesus said, no, Nicodemus, a person has to be born of water, amniotic fluid, the breaking of water. A person has to be born of flesh, and a person has to be born of spirit. A person has to be born uh, from below and above. The Bible said Nicodemus continued to be curious. Jesus looked at him incredulously and said, Nicodemus, are you a ruler of the Jews? Are you a rabbi yourself, a teacher, a Pharisee, and you don't know these things? This is taught by all of the prophets. This is Jeremiah's new covenant 
It is a birth of heart, a birth of spirit. Not a one-time event, but, a, but a, a, a continual process of a heart renewed and transformed. And then we get to our text tonight. Jesus said, for even as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Now he's alluding to an old story back in Numbers 21. When the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were in their wandering. They were murmuring and complaining against Moses as they often did. And uh, the beautiful story from the Old Testament is that God got aggravated at them for murmuring. And so God sick poisonous snakes on them. This is the first snakes in church uh, text in the Bible. It's not a good one. And the snakes went out in the, amongst the people, the Israelites, and started biting them. And Lee, the people started dying. And the people cried out to God. And Moses cried out and said, please, mercy God, back off on the snakes and God told Moses he said here's what do make a bronze serpent put it on a pole and you walk around amongst the people holding that stick up in the air and whoever gets bit by a snake when they look at the serpent they'll be healed isn't that a blessing of a story not much of a devotional there is it this is the story that Jesus alluded to and he said even as Moses lifted up the serpent, the Gospel of John gives us Jesus in some superior sense because Jesus isn't the one lifting up the serpent. Jesus is the one on the stick. Jesus said, even as Moses lifted up the serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And, and then we get to the Johannine text that has been used by Christianity for the first 2,000 years um, and has been used and I, I think even in that late first century, early second century, uh, the church really was pressing into an exclusivism that was unhealthy then and it's unhealthy now. Uh, this is a text that you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and it's a tone that you don't find in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's really a reversal of sorts because right out of the chute, there was no severing between Christianity and Judaism. There was a messianic figure named Jesus that people, Jewish people, followed, and they did not cease with their Judaism. Even Paul, later, uh, a couple of decades later, the book of Acts said, at, at the end of the book of Acts, when Paul came back to Jerusalem where he was abducted, he went up to the temple to sacrifice. Think about that. Have you looked over that one? Paul went up to the temple to sacrifice. Peter and John were going to the temple to worship. Um, early Christians were still Jewish and they went to the synagogues and they went to the temple. They met in their house and did the Christian thing, but they were very much Jewish. But in the early days of the Christian church, it's interesting, born out of Judaism, there was an immediate response that, that Jews or Jewish people from the Jewish faith were privileged and they were the only ones who had access to the gospel. It's amazing. Every move of spirit, every birth of a new religious effort is always compromised, is always attacked, is always threatened and tempted by the need for, if we are the winners, if we have the truth, then they have the untruth. If we are winners, then somebody's got to be a loser. If we are in, then somebody's got to be out. And so the early church made the decision that Gentiles could not even have access to the gospel. Think about that. 99.9% .9 of the world, our church has been embroiled and impassioned with the idea of 
inclusion for uh, a group of people that make up a percentage of society. The early church uh, had an issue uh, that they had to deal with very quickly because they believed, filled with the spirit, that 99.9% of the earth's population had no access to the gospel unless they converted to Judaism. And they were quickly corrected, painfully corrected, and they realized their exclusivism was incredibly wrong. It's reversed now. 30 to 40 years later, the Gentile inclusion, the church had grown, and at the end of the first century, there became uh, a growing adversarial relationship with their Jewish forebears and with a not a dominating number of Gentiles leading the church, but a large number of Gentiles. There was a reversal, and by the time the Gospel of John was written, it seems that one of the missions of the Gospel of John is to explain just how bad the Jews are and just how bad Judaism is and how it's responsible for the rejection of Jesus. A tone, again, that you don't find on the lips of Jesus in the earlier Gospels. Uh, that text is not the part of the text that I really want to deal with tonight, but it's an important part of the text that maybe someday we will look at. Uh, it's lovely to hear that for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth would not perish. It's lovely, even the next verse we enjoy. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. But it's that next verse, those who don't believe are condemned already. And we come to that issue of exclusivism. And the Christian church is going to have to wrestle with exclusivism. And I have said, and will say again and again, if we do not mature and evolve out of our exclusivism, then the world needs to evolve out of us. It is a poor spirituality that has to have losers in order for some to be winners. And I think that is where the church is going. But the text that is incredibly interesting to me, and I'll just look at it quickly with you, I just have a few things that I want to say to you, and it's really, really spoken to me this week, and I hope it'll do the same for you, is the second part of our lectionary text. It really, in, in a way, almost stands alone. Um, forgive me, I have moved into a new era in my life, Barbara. I have readers now. I had no, yep, thank you. I had, I, I thought the print business had really gotten bad because everything was so blurry and I was always, um, 1.5, by the way. I could have handled 1.25, but, oh, this is wonderful. <laughs> those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they've not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light. All right, let's back up to the first chapter. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is the light. And in him was life, and, and in that life was the light of men. 
and the light shone in darkness. This is a huge motif in the, in the Gospel of John. And the light shone in darkness, and the darkness did not respond to it. Remember the King James? And the darkness comprehendeth it not. He came unto his own. Again, back to this tense relationship. It's budding between the Jewish family and the Christian family that was splitting us. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Now, in the third chapter of John, again with exclusivistic leanings, he's making the case. Listen, I remember in seminary, I traveled with a young guy that always had readers, and he would always say, let's turn to the book of Matthew, and he'd put them on and he'd read. Come to find out they were clear. He just thought it made him look wise using readers. (laughs) This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, Jesus, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil, okay? The light came, people rejected him. Why did they reject him? The Johannine Gospel says because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and don't come to the light. Because they do not want their deeds to be exposed. But those who do what is true are not afraid of the light. Those who do what is good come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in a godly way. So the case is made. People didn't like Jesus because their deeds are evil. Anybody who has not become a Christian, the Johannine community was positing are inherently evil. Because there is this general principle that people who have something to hide don't like light. Now let me say something about that for a moment. Uh, John's gospel is deeply rooted in Hebrew tradition. And as much as it's very anti-Judaistic, it's not anti-Semitic because that's culture. That's a group of people. It's anti-Judaistic. It's, it's very strong against the religion of the Jews. But as much as it's anti-Judaistic, it's very much rooted in Jewish culture. I mean, he's telling stories about snakes that bit and Moses and the brazen serpent. And he very much is following the Hebrew idea of light here. The Greek idea of light, whether that's Heraclitus or uh, Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, all of the great 3rd, 4th century philosophers in, in the Greek world really built a foundation that when you talk about light in early Greek thought, even up to medieval times, when you talk about light in, uh, through the Greek lens, they're talking about purity and perfection. So light is synonymous with perfection and purity. It's not the Hebrew idea of light. The Hebrew idea of light is not perfection or completeness or purity. The Hebrew idea of light is illumination, revealing. Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp to my feet. Um, All throughout the Psalms and the prophets, 99% of the time light is mentioned in a metaphoric way. It's referring not to perfection or moral perfection. Uh, It's referring to the ability of God to illumine things and reveal things. And so you get that here in the Gospel of John. And I want to say to that end, 
I think generally the principle is true. And I don't think it's really all that arguable. Uh, I, I do believe that people who do wrong purposefully end up avoiding light and truth because they want to avoid change. What do we say in the addiction world, Steve? We, we get lost in our addiction and we break out in lying. People who have something to cover, um, who aren't doing right, absolutely yield to things like deception and if they're not ready to change, they hide, they shuck, they jive, it's true. Um, to that end, Psalm 32, happy are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy are those to whom the Lord imputes no iniquity and in whose spirit there's no deceit. This is David after his affair with Bathsheba. Listen to what he said. He said, when I kept silent, my bones dried up and my body wasted away. He's offering a contrast between the covering of God's forgiveness that comes when we confess and we step into the light. I mean, that's the 12-step world. Hi, I'm Stan, and I am. And the response is, hi, Stan. Glad you're here. But when I was covering, and I mean, you talk about covering, he takes this guy's wife and gets her pregnant and then finds out that the guy's still out on the battlefield and in order to cover it up, brings the guy home from the battlefield, tells him to go be with his wife because he's been such a good soldier. The next morning, the king wakes up and on his doorstep is the morning paper and the guy. His name's Uriah. And David, whose plan is foiled, looks at him and says, I told you, go be with your wife. You've been such a good general. And the guy said, with my men on the battlefield dying, I am not going to go unto my wife. David sent him back out with a note in his hand, sealed with the signet of a king, and the note gave the superiors to whom Uriah delivered the note, gave them the charge of putting him on the front line, and if the enemy didn't get him from the front, they were to get him from the back, and that's exactly what happened. And when they brought his dead body home, David, in an act of magnanimity, said, well, I will take his widow unto myself, and all the people said, what a guy. David said, when I did that, I pulled it up in the contemporary English version. I thought it was even a, a, a clearer translation. David described that, that time in his life, and we've all been there, when we wanted to stay as far out of the light, honest relationships, truth relationships as we possibly can because we got stuff to hide. Our God, you bless everyone whose sins you forgive and wipe away. You bless them by saying, you told me your sins without trying to hide them, and I forgive you. But before I confessed my sins, David said, my bones felt limp. My soul dried up inside of me, and I groaned all day long. Night and day, your hand weighed heavily on me, and my strength was gone as in the summer heat. It was uh, the writer of Proverbs, the 28th chapter, the first proverb in that chapter says it well. Wicked people flee when no one's even chasing them. But those who live right are as brave as lions. So I, I want to just, maybe I'm teeing this up too big, but I just want to say, I think it is true. But when I read this text this week, 
I, I, I thought to myself, there is another side to this story. I believe that there are other reasons than the one offered by John's gospel that some people didn't buy the Jesus story. And I personally believe that there are other reasons why people avoid the light of honesty and relationships uh, where there is clarity and accountability. I think there are other reasons than just to gloss over and say they're all evil. I remember growing up in exclusivistic religion, and Steve, anybody who didn't agree with us, it was just easy to call them the devil. Um, these last years, as uh, what I hope is a reforming church and a reformer myself, whether it was on the LGBT issue or just the tenets of progressive liberal Christianity, it's amazing to me the labels that people can put on you. And, you know, I, the funniest one is people say that I've done this. Uh, for the fame and money. <laughs> uh, but it's so easy. You know, even in 1 John, there's this kind of cryptic saying. John said, you know those people that left us? The reason they left us was because they weren't of us. And they went out from us that it might be revealed they weren't of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have never gone out from us. But they went out from us that it might, literally, that's what it says. I remember back in the days, you know, when people would leave the church, would say, man, the devil's left, now we can have revival. To say everybody loves darkness and rejects Christianity and Jesus because they're evil. That's not been my experience. I think there are other reasons. Reasons that we are culpable and complicit in and reasons that I think are at the heart of what we're trying to do here as a church. Two years ago, my brother, who is, by my estimation, one of the finest people I know. I talk about him often. He's two years older than I am. Um, I told Unity. I, was, I, I spoke for Unity because John was out of town Sunday. When I got up at Unity this past Sunday, I said, okay, I really appreciate John having me here, and I just want to be really clear that I'm here to get as many of you to leave Unity and come to Grace Point as possible. And I told John that, and uh, some of them are here tonight being kind. We are not sheep stealers. <coughs> I told John this afternoon, we're not sheep stealers, we're sheep sharers. Um, he didn't think that was funny. But <laughs> as I was... Um, I was talking to Unity about my, I said this about my brother. He and I were two years apart, and we looked like twins, and we sat on the front row of church, and all the stuff that I have deprogrammed, all the toxicity that hit me, I don't know how, but it didn't hit him. So much of this has to do with personality, I think. And he was like Teflon. He wasn't a reprobate, he was just like Teflon. He thought, he listened to it and thought, uh, nah. I was like a black wool sweater for Lent. I, I just, I attracted shame and guilt and I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I went into the ministry and years of psychological turmoil and pathology and he left and found his way to the Discovery Channel, History Channel and is just the nicest reverent agnostic that's just about the finest. He's got like the nine fruit of the spirit just built in. 
and he just lives a peaceful life. And the best thing he's, we never, we don't talk about God. We don't talk about church. I quit doing that with him years ago. First three or four years of my ministry, he was cannon fodder for me. Man, he was the story I told at every youth camp and revival. He was so kind to not take me to task on that. And, but anyway, he, um, he came over a couple of years ago. We're Steelers fan, fans. When you grow up in the 70s and 80s in Arkansas, there's no football team, so you either pick the Cowboys or Steelers, and he and I picked the Steelers. And so he came out for the Steelers game against the Titans, and we talked about God for the first time, I suppose, in 20 years. We went over to the Gerst house and ate, and we were walking back, and he said, you know, Bub, I listen to your sermon sometime. And Steve, was, my jaw dropped. I said, you do? He said, yeah, he said, Tiff and I said, if we lived in Nashville, we'd probably even come to your church. I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, I like what you're saying. He said, I thought all that 25 years ago. And I said, huh. He said, so you think I'm okay? This is interesting. He said, you think I'm okay? I said, I think you're just fine. And this is what I told him. I said, I think as a matter of fact, if Jesus really is the guy and there is a judgment, I think when you get up there, I think you'll have some things to gripe at me about, but I think when you get up there with the 300 dogs you've saved, I mean, he's always taking in dogs and picking up strays and giving people the shirt off his back. I said, I think he's going to get up there and he's going to shake your hand and say, Steve Mitchell, thank you for taking up for me. Because what our religion counted as your rejection of Jesus, you weren't rejecting Jesus at all. You were rejecting an incredibly horrible facsimile of Jesus. Not only do I not think you're a reprobate and an apostate, I, I think you were brave and courageous and honest spiritually, and I think the real Jesus will commend you for taking up for him. He's not a Christian because the text says it's easy. He's evil. They don't come into a, a fellowship of uh, a fellowship where they can be honest about their life. You know why? You know why they're not getting straight about their infidelities and their dishonesties and their, and their broken? You know why? Because they're evil. That's why. Bad religion oversimplifies. And I would say that as surely as there are people who I suppose are wicked and they love resisting light... As my mentor, Brother Hardwick, told me years ago, he said, Stan, I used to see evil people everywhere, and after 60 years of ministry, I no longer can name three. But in retrospect, I have met thousands of broken, hurting people who what we call sin is just an outcry of pain. More frequently, within the circle of the church, the world I have grown up in it has not been people's desire to cling to their sin in unhealthy ways that has kept them from confession and repentance and honesty and sobriety and help and transformation. 
But I have not found it true that people don't come to church, they don't like Christianity, they're mad at Christians. I have not found it true that it's because they're wicked. I have found that it's not evil at all. It is reasonable fear on their part. That if they really did get honest and if they really did attach to this business called the church, that instead of help, they would receive hurt. Instead of equanimity, they would experience judgment. And I'm not just picking on the church. I'm, I'm sure this happens everywhere. But I have to say, I haven't experienced people like my brother running from the church because they didn't want to live honestly. But they didn't want to be condemned and they didn't want to be marked. And I think beautifully, a later text in the Johannine community that I asked Glenn to put up for me is in 1 John. And I'm coming down the home stretch, I promise. Give me five minutes just to read through this and one more thing. The Johannine community after the Gospel of John, I think, reflected more deeply on this issue. And in 1 John, they offer this insight. Look at this text. You don't have to read it out loud. I'll read it to you, but just follow this. This is the message we've heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. The motif's still there. God's light, and in him there's no darkness at all. If, if we say that we have fellowship with God while we are walking in darkness... Now see, darkness is not imperfection, and light is not perfection. Remember, it's illumination. So if we say that we have fellowship with God, but we walk dishonestly. If we say we have fellowship with God, and we walk hiding our stuff, and not being honest about our life, then we're lying, and we don't do what is not perfect, but what's true. But if we walk in the light as He, God, is in the light, watch this, we have fellowship with one another. That's the thing about the 12-step world. You get in there, and I, I look forward to the day, and maybe this is the church's part where we can bring our last name to, and it doesn't have to be so anonymous because there's no shame involved. But you get in there, and you step into the light, and it, it's middle school all over again. I'll show you mine if you'll show me yours. Forgive that, but you get the point. <laughs> you get in there and this is what happens if we say that we have no sin we deceive ourselves and the truth isn't in us but if we'll confess our sin now that word confess is a great word in the Greek it's homo legeo h-o-m-o same legeo to say confession literally is homo legeo it says it means to say the same thing to say the same thing as who as God to see it right. That's why Paul said godly sorrow works repentance or the change of mind. Sorrow like God has causes you to change your mind. You look at the way you treat someone. You look at the way you treat your spouse, your kids, and you see it the way the divine sees it. You see it through a divine uh, eye. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light... We actually, when we step into the light and everything is seen, guess what happens? If the church gets it right, the way the 12-step world gets it right, then we don't get ostracized and judged. We find fellowship. Notice the plurality of this. If we walk in the light, that means 
<laughs> that, means, that means when we step into the light, we all step in together. Anybody ever been in an accountability group and you spilled your guts and after you got through spilling your guts, it was their turn and they looked at, their, their turn, and, they looked at you and said, whew, okay. <laughs> you put it all out there. Anybody ever been in a relationship, you put it all out there and they look at you and say, thank you. Honest pursuit of health needs to happen in community. My brother at that little church at Scott and Porter Street did not find in that variation of Christianity a safe place to be his imperfect self. But if we will walk in the light as he himself is in the light, look at this, we have fellowship with one another. And here's how I know that light doesn't indicate perfection because watch what happens when we walk in the light as he is in the light. One first thing is we have fellowship. And it's a fellowship of imperfection and brokenness. Just real humans. We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Don't be nervous about the blood there. The blood is the life. The life is the light of God. The blood is simply the love of God here. Greater love hath no man than he shed his blood for us. We're not into atonement theology. We don't think there's a wrathful God who has to be assuaged by the blood of his son. But there is still power in the love of God and the life of God which was depicted. Just like when King bled out on the second floor of the Lorraine Motel, that blood said something and so does Jesus. It may not be needed to assuage the wrath of God, but it was needed and, and that love of Jesus, his son, I want you to notice this. It doesn't cleanse you, it cleanses us. So forgiveness and growth and health is also supposed to be done communally. So confession's done communally, honesty's done communally, and when you do that communally, then you have fellowship and the blood of Jesus Christ. And you know what the fellowship is based on? It's us getting forgiven together. It's us getting better together. It's, it's no moral superiority and one upsmanship and there's no caste system. It's just a bunch of men sitting around on Thursday night saying, me too. Right there with you. And the fellowship that comes in that is amazing. Read it out. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we say walking in the light means there's nothing to see because we're perfect, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess, homo our sin, he who's faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar. That's enough there. And his words not in us. <coughs> so I'll close with this. So this is Beekner responding to that, re that uh, little paragraph from Brendan. Transform that scene. It's not C.S. Lewis's dwarves who are gathered together. It's, very, it's people very much like you and me. People sitting in the basement of a church or an American Legion post or an after-hours hospital cafeteria. Fluorescent lights buzz overhead. There's an urn of coffee. There's a basket which is passed around at some point which everyone 
who can afford to puts a dollar or two in to help pay for the coffee and the rent of the room. In one sense, these people beneath the fluorescent light are strangers who know each other only by their first names and almost nothing else about each other. And in another sense, they are best friends who little by little come to know each other from the inside out instead of the other way around. The world that we usually live in, the way we usually know one another, what do you do? Where do you live? They do not know each other's biographies, but they know something about each other's frailties, failures, and fears. They know something, too, about each other's strengths, hope, gladness, and about where they have found them. They don't give each other advice. They simply give each other stories about the good and the bad of what has happened to them over the years. Though they do not use such images to describe it, they tell each other of the glimpses they have had from time to time of the sunlit meadow beyond the confining dark of the great lion who from time to time has stooped his golden head and breathed on them. In other words, they tell each other their secrets. And as you listen, you hear, among other things, your own secrets on their lips. They could hardly be a more ill-assorted lot. Some are educated, some never finished grade school, some are on welfare, and some of them have hit the jackpot. Some are straight, some are gay. There are senior citizens among them and also 20-year-olds. Some groups are composed of alcoholics and some, like the ones I found my way to, of people who have no alcoholic problem themselves but come from families who did. The one thing they have in common can be easily stated. It's just that they all believe that they cannot live fully human lives without each other. The one thing they have in common is that they believe they cannot live fully human lives without each other and without what they call their higher power. They avoid using the word God because some of them don't believe in God. What they all do believe in or are searching for is a power higher than their own which will make them well. Some of them would simply say that's the power of the group itself. They are apt to begin their meetings with a prayer written by my old seminary professor, Reinhold Niebuhr. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. They are apt often to end with the Lord's Prayer. Thy will be done. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us as we forgive. Deliver us. To lend each other a hand when we're falling, Brendan said, perhaps that's the only way, the only work that matters in the end. As they live their lives, they try to follow a kind of spiritual rule which consists basically not only of uncovering their own dark secrets, but of making peace, a peace with the people they've hurt and been hurt by. At some point, they make a searching, fearless moral inventory, and they sit painfully with themselves, with God, and with one other person to reveal those things. And then they seek ways to make peace with those that have hurt them and who they've been hurt, or they have hurt, through prayer and meditation, through seeking help from each other and from helpful books, they try to draw near any way they can to God or to whatever they call what they have instead of God, which I think is God. They sometimes make serious slips. They sometimes make miraculous gains. They laugh a lot. They cry a lot. They care about one another's children whose names they don't even know. When the meeting is over, they embrace Sometimes one of them will take special responsibility for another, agreeing to be available at any hour of day or night if the need should arise. They also have slogans. And I'll skip and read this last piece. 
I do not believe that such groups as these, which I found my way to not long after returning from Wheaton or Alcoholics Anonymous, which is the group they all grew out of, I don't think these groups are perfect any more than anything human is perfect. But I believe the church has an enormous amount to learn from them. I also believe that what goes on in them is far closer to what Christ meant his church to be and what it originally was than much of what goes on in most churches I know. These groups have no buildings or official leadership or money. They have no rummage cells, no altar guilds, no every member canvases. They have no preachers, no choirs, no liturgy, no real estate. They have no creeds. They have no program. They make you wonder if the best thing that could happen to many a church might not be to have its building burned down and lose all its money. Then all that the people would have left would be each other. The church often bears an uncomfortable resemblance to the dysfunctional family. There's the authoritarian presence of the minister, the professional who knows all of the answers and calls most of the shots, whom few ever challenge, gulp, either because they don't dare to or because they feel it would do no good if they did. There's the outward camaraderie and inward loneliness of the congregation. There are the unspoken rules and hidden agendas, the doubts and disagreements that for propriety's sake are kept more or less undercover. There are people with all sorts of enthusiasms and creativities which are not often enough made use of or even recognized because the tendency is to not rock the boat but to keep on doing things the way we've always done them. These groups I speak of, on the other hand, are more like what families at their best can be than most families are and certainly most churches. They are more like family because in them something is often extraordinarily like truth or something extraordinarily like truth is spoken. And something happens that is extraordinarily like love. I am convinced that if Jesus went up to the temple to pray, he would find himself beneath those fluorescent lights more frequently than he would find himself through the prism of our stained glass. Can anybody say amen? Amen. I like all that. That part about the authoritarian guy that nobody bucks, that's a little bit off. But the rest of that was, I think, spot on. So, I suppose, uh, Matt, you guys come. We'll uh, close the service and pass the plate and everybody put a dollar in. I suppose what I'm saying is, is the reason people aren't filling up churches isn't because they're evil. And the reason everybody is rejecting Jesus isn't because they're faithless. And Steve, I think what I'm saying is Saturday's good, but we, we, we've got to make those stories work and we've got to make counseling with Barbara work and we've got to get Thursday night groups where men get together and sit around. That's the deal. That's the deal. And... I love Saturday. I think we are a sacramental community that will always come together for worship. But I would just encourage you, whether it's meal groups that, good Lord, we've got to get back up and running, or 12-step groups, find your way into a lit community. Find your way into a few friendships where when you step into the light and say, hi, I am, and this is me. I remember when I made my moral inventory, I've only told one person everything I ever did. And I told that person, I couldn't even look him in the eye. He was an older man. By the time I got to the end of it, I couldn't look at him. And all of a sudden, I heard him start chuckling. 
And he said, that's all you got? And he wasn't making light of the mistakes I've made and the people I've hurt, but the grace that flowed into me. That is Christianity, and that's the church. Can you say amen? And we can all do better at it.